0: Hello, and welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. Hello, everybody. Welcome to That's Not Spit, It's Condensation. I'm Ryan Beach, and today I am joined by a very good friend of mine. He's the principal oboe of the Alabama Symphony, among many other pursuits that we will uh, talk about, the things that he's interested in. Um, He's a well-rounded, incredibly interesting individual, and I hope that we can sort of find that out together, more about that together as we go through. So uh, we have Jim Sullivan with us. Thank you, Jim, for joining me on my podcast. I'm happy to be here. Yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, I've known Jim for a couple of years now. Obviously, we play in the orchestra together, but Jim is one of the first people for me that kind of reached out and was very encouraging. Um, beyond just saying nice job, you know, he kind of was very complimentary of some things I had done. And it, it's always nice, you know, to hear that, especially when you're new at a job. And from that point on, I think Jim and I had a uh, just a really nice relationship. I respect him. I respect his playing considerably, and I think there's a lot that I can learn from him. So um, we're going to start off with the, the, the easy questions, I suppose, um, with where were you born? Where are you from? Where did you grow up? If that's different from where you were born, and, and kind of just the road that led you to the Alabama Symphony Orchestra.
1: I grew up in a small town in North Georgia called Carnesville. It is very small, and it is the point that's about halfway between Atlanta, Georgia, and Greenville, South Carolina. So um, after that, I went to high school there, and then I went to um, University of Georgia with the idea of becoming a vet, because that's what I had thought up until that point in my
0: life. Um, so you didn't dream of the oboe when you were younger?
1: Well, I got a late start on the oboe. I, I came from a very musical family and um, started on trumpet because my sister was a really good trumpet player and she had at least one
0: spare trumpet at that point. So that's what I started on. This is something I learned about you afterwards that I'm so happy that I know about you. Uh, how many people know that? Is it a secret you keep close to your chest, generally speaking, or is it kind of more widely known that you played the trumpet? I tried to keep it a secret but it seems to be creeping out
1: into the world. I'm kind of newly reunited with my trumpet teacher from high school cuz I actually played trumpet through 11th grade. So, um the funny and sort of sad part is that my elementary school band director played oboe and he was I think he was fresh out of school. He couldn't keep control of the class. So he would actually play his oboe for us in a desperate attempt to try to keep classroom control. And so I fell into I fell in love with the oboe in fifth grade. And he told us a little bit about it, and he even let me try to play it at the end of class one day, and made a big deal that I could, you know, get some noises to come out. So I was kind of obsessed with oboe from fifth grade, but um, stuck with trumpet mostly because. My band director encouraged me to, so I did the whole all-state band thing and um, took private lessons, And but in the back of my mind, I always wanted to play oboe, and I talked my band director into letting me at least take an instrument home when I was in middle school, so just played around with it a little bit, and then finally, taught when when one band director left and the other one took over, I talked her
0: into letting me actually convert to being an oboe player so you were i assume then better at the trumpet for a long time than you may have been at the oboe until you decided to do the oboe most more, ser- more seriously or is
1: that? yeah i remember my band directors i i, I was going to try to do both things and i wanted to audition for all state band on trumpet and oboe and i remember her saying well would you rather not make Allstate on one instrument or two <laughs> So at that <laughs> at that moment I decided
0: okay I'll just I'll just do oboe and see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> I guess the rest is yeah. Okay. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So 11th grade you played trumpet until 11th grade and then you then decided to do the oboe solely after that and then um where did that take you from there? The
1: summer of my 11th grade year I went to a double reed workshop at the University of Georgia and Shortly after that, I started um studying with the oboe professor at at u g a and um I was very interested in animals and worked for a vet was good friends with a couple of different veterinarians when I was in high school and was really into raising birds i w- my goal was to be an avian vet so um uh, my my oboe teacher as I was getting close to graduating wanted me to be a music major at UGA and um was pretty persuasive and UGA has an amazing vet school so my idea was that I would go you know maybe pursue a music degree and then go to vet school and that kind of almost happened until the last second
0: what's the what is it what do you mean by that
1: well I as I got to UGA I decided that I would be a music education major um, and pursued that route. And then when an extra year I took as much science as I could to try to get ready to, to go to, to try to get into vet school. And shortly after I finished my oboe um, lesson rotation or uh, requirements at UGA for the music education degree, I started studying with Jonathan Deloy, who was, At that time, principal oboe in the Atlanta Symphony. So that was the first time that I had had access or lessons from an actual orchestral player. So he was a great player and um, a great teacher. And so at that point, I, you know, I worked with him very hard and um, was able to sub with the Atlanta Symphony
0: and the Atlanta Opera, playing with him, and that just kind of changed my whole course. Did you know... When did you know, I guess, is a better question. When did you know that something like orchestral playing was what you wanted to do? Because I'm I'm kind of a believer that... um, at some point, you kind of got to choose, especially for orchestral playing, just because of the the study necessary and the kind of the diligence necessary to get that sound and know those excerpts and things like that. So was there a point that you said, this is what I want to do, I want to be in an orchestra, or you just enjoyed playing the oboe and it kind of worked out that way?
1: Well, actually, um, being from a pretty small town, even though I'm from a musical family, I didn't have we didn't go to symphony concerts that's just not what we did my um i can tell you more about my my parents and their music later but it was mostly church related my mom was an amazing piano player my dad was a really good singer i had an older brother and sister and younger sister that were all very musical but symphony concerts were just not what we did so I knew that Jonathan Deloey was an amazing oboist, and that's why I pursued him. So it wasn't until I sat in with the Atlanta Symphony, and I think, well, I'm sure we were playing the Rachmaninoff symphonic dances, and I was just blown away by the whole experience. And, you know, so it wasn't something that kind of crept in. It was just something that I was just kind of overtaken by the whole experience. So
0: kind of at that moment, you thought, this is this is what I want to do, or I just really like doing this, let's see what happens. Or you were just like, this is it, this is what i got to do with my life now.
1: Uh, that kind of, It was kind of like, this is what I've got to do. And shortly after that, I got to play with um, him in the, the Atlanta Opera Orchestra, and we did Madame Butterfly, and that was the first time I had been to an opera, was when I was in the pit playing for an opera. So those two experiences... Um, you know, kind of cemented it all in, and I'd gotten very far in the process of getting into vet school and actually pursuing that, and I just kind of dropped everything all at one time, and my parents were, surprisingly, now that I think back on it, supportive of the whole thing, because most of my family is in the medical field, and and, um, they were, I'm sure, much more at ease with me pursuing a veterinary degree than than a music degree because I just didn't know. Besides teaching in a in a public school or uh, well, really that's the only thing that's what they thought of when they thought of professional musicians were were you know band directors, and um, I don't think they could really see me doing that necessarily at that time. So um, <clears throat> you know, it was kind of an educational experience when I was learning what it takes to become an orchestral player you know for my parents as well as myself
0: sure so you're uh what i would consider then a wonderful example of somebody who maybe didn't have their path completely figured out from the from the, from the get go right as a freshman you had one path carved out and then just towards the end is when you made that shift um so obviously it works out you know it maybe some people have their path figured out this is more for like students and stuff who may feel like they're not 100% sure about what's going on it can clearly work out incredibly well for you um, if the path changes and so my question i guess then through this is what kind of how did your work ethic change from you were already playing the oboe you already loved it but when you decided you were going to try to pursue this more seriously instead of doing veterinary school now you're going to go ahead and be try to become an orchestral oboist how did your work ethic change i think or did it even change at all i mean were you were you that serious beforehand you just made the choice to pursue it more seriously well,
1: I think I've always enjoyed a challenge. And I think that the, I don't want to say frantic nature, but the the heat of the moment nature of how quickly I had to learn. And working with um, Jonathan deloy you know, he knew basically that I had so much ground to cover. And I think the excitement of that or the fact that I, Felt like I had a deadline, or maybe I felt like everybody else was ahead of me, or something about that whole process was, um, probably what it took to make me, um, you know, make a lot of progress. Because if I'd been, you know, the kid that grew up in a household with professional musicians and went to interlocking for high school and, you know, went, you know, pr- pursued performance from, my undergraduate years i'm i don't think i would have been as as excited i've just always liked the challenge and i've always felt like you know i when the goals are laid out in front of me and i feel like time is of the essence i feel like i always i think robert shaw said that his life was filled with unexpected opportunities followed by makeup lessons and i kind of feel like this that's just kind of the same way because i had well, it may be exactly the same way that, you know, I was given some great chances
0: and then I felt like I was just having to rise to the occasion. So do you feel the oboe in particular provides that challenge for you on a regular basis, considering, you know, how many solos there are and how exposed you are? Do you feel like that aspect of you enjoying a challenge is sort of uh, you're sort of fed that through uh, being especially principal oboe? Just definitely. Yeah. That's awesome. I did not know that about you. Um, So I think we left off. You had decided to go ahead and be uh, an oboe player in an orchestra. That's what you wanted to do. Um, I assume you graduated from school because you have a bachelor's degree. So where did you go from there? Well, it was at that
1: time that I became really interested in choral music Um people that know that i'm a choir director now for five years which is recent um are surprised that my whole love of choir directing came from way back when so when i graduated from high school my church uh, my home church where my where i grew up um the choir director had to leave they were looking for just basically someone to fill in so I, I had become a music major at that time. I think I was still in my freshman year. I had no idea about choir directing choral music, nothing and I just thought, well, you know, maybe I can kind of practice what I'm doing in my in my classes at school and until they can get someone that knows what they're doing so anyway i it became um a huge obsession for me, so um I kind of had these two pathways going at the same time um so i was choir director at my home church started taking voice lessons at uga as i was getting close to graduating all of this happened with jonathan de and and the oboe and the atlanta symphony and all that so i had these two very demanding i guess um pathways going on at exactly the same time so after i graduated from uga my plan was to take another year and um, fulfill more requirements to get into vet school. So, um, so I had my degree. I had that that one year that I was working on all the science classes. I auditioned because I had completely fallen in love with choral music. I auditioned for the Atlanta Symphony Chorus. When Robert Shaw was there, I got in there, which was surprising to me at that point um, in time. And that was, I guess, kind of the thing that changed my entire life. Um, So after that one year, I made the decision that I wanted to pursue oboe and choir directing somehow. But I knew that oboe was going to be the thing that took precedence because trying to get an orchestral position is is so demanding and competitive. And I knew I was going to have to give that everything. But in the meantime, I got a job teaching elementary music at my elementary school that I attended. So I was teaching elementary school, taking lessons from Jonathan Deloy and subbing with the Atlanta symphony and also singing in the, the chorus at the same time. I had a, a principal that I worked for at the school that, um, had started off as a music major so she actually was very open to me and you know letting me pursue all of this stuff because i i I think she felt like i would bring it back at least some of it back to the classroom so i did that for a year um the next later that that same year a position at buford high school closer to atlanta um came open their choral um the choral director at buford high school which the man that had been there bill davis had been there for many many years and he was actually going to remain at the school as vice principal so at the time i was 20 i got that job so at the time i was 22 and I was running a choral program that they had been invited to sing at the Olympic Games in Barcelona. I think is wow, it was in that's Bar- incredible. So it was, it was that would be the case of of makeup lessons. I mean, unexpected opportunities.
0: Yeah, so yeah, that's crazy.
1: <laughs> so I did that. I survived that year, and um, it was at the end of that year that I knew that the that the pathways were going to. I had. Tried to continue studying oboe and being serious about that, but it was at that moment that I knew that oboe had to come first, and that's what happened. So I went to graduate school after that, and um, so
0: you didn't go straight to graduate school. No. Obviously, you said you had a year in between. Was it just one year in between that I'm that I'm gathering? Well, it know? was
1: actually three years when you three count years, okay. the the year that I was doing the science courses and then the two years that I taught. So could you be a veter- a veterinarian right now? Could I be? Yeah. No, I never went to vet school.
0: Oh, right. This okay. was all preparing to to do that. To do that, right? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just got that miss. I got that miss <laughs> I wanted to clarify for me. Um. So then, where did you decide to go to grad school?
1: I went to this is at this point I had worked with Jonathan Deloy for several years. I had worked a little bit with John Mack, who um, would later become. Um. A very big influence on me um Jonathan Deloy had encouraged me to study with Ralph Gomberg, who was a Toe student like john mack and um but he felt like um he could help me more with musical aspects at that point. Jonathan Deloy was sort of known as being an incredible reed maker and and all things technical on the oboe that goes that go into how we are able to play the instrument like gouging machines making reeds all all of, all of that stuff he was an expert at that so he wanted me to pursue study with Ralph Gomberg who he thought would probably maybe leave some of that alone and and try to bring out the you know, the musical elements, was it, which is exactly what I needed at that time in my life. So I went to Boston University and did a master's degree in oboe performance with Ralph Gomburg.
0: Um, this is... I'm a trumpet player, obviously, and so I know nothing, absolutely nothing, about making reeds. But I know it's one reason I'm incredibly glad I did not choose a double reed instrument. And so... I would like you, is it possible to succinctly go through the process of what making reeds is for any of us out there who have no idea what that looks like? So we just have a maybe a small inkling of appreciation um, for what kind of goes into this thing that makes or breaks how well things go for you. Yeah, well, I mean, that's a huge can of worms.
1: So, I mean, reed making is something I do for probably at least an hour or two every day so it's just um you know the reed is the mouthpiece really and it's a double reed and it's extremely small it's much smaller than any other um reed instrument but it's the two reeds vibrate together as opposed to a reed vibrating against you know a a substance that's, you know, made of wood or plastic or some polymer of some kind, you know, like saxophone or clarinet that, so you've got more of, I I would think it would be a little more stable to have something that's kind of a given, but with oboe bassoon and, you know, the other English horn, the other double reed instruments, you actually have the two reeds vibrating together. So I feel like that alone is going to create a lot of instability but the oboe reed is thinner than the other ones. And so they don't, it, it takes a lot of air pressure to play the oboe. So you're exerting a huge amount of air pressure on a mater- on a reed that is extremely thin and the better the reed sounds, the thinner it is on the tip or the very end of the reed, the part that vibrates together. So you're exerting this huge amount of air on a very fragile material that you know so they just don't last long and they're very susceptible to everything like well humidity temperature but things you might not even think about like barometric pressure and um so it's a constant process because we have to have so many to choose from because you know if the weather changes the reeds that worked yesterday or two hours ago or whatever, aren't going to work anymore. So you have to have all these possibilities and then combine that with the fact that they just don't last long. So readmaking is an, an everyday thing for me. And,
0: um, sounds like you should have just stuck with the trumpet. We just <laughs> put our mouthpiece in and I don't, don't even think about it after that. It's the same mouthpiece for most of our, or if not our entire career. Yeah. It sounds like you should have just
1: stuck with the trumpet. <laughs> you might be right. I don't know. Yeah. Well. <laughs>
0: Yeah, it's incredible to me that the way you describe that it's two thin pieces of cane, right? Right. It's cane. Two thin pieces of cane vibrating against each other put inside of this instrument. And then it creates this incredibly beautiful sound. It's like it shouldn't really be possible that that's the sound that comes out of an oboe, given what things are actually going on. You're right. Yeah. (laughs) It's just, it's crazy to me. So, um All right, well, so you went to grad school at BU, um, and then I know you. when you did your work, you said Mr. Mack was a huge influence on you. When did you get together and that influence, when did that begin? Well, um... And who is Mr. Mack, for those of us that may not know?
1: John Mack was principal of the the Cleveland Orchestra, and um, he was Jonathan DeLoy's teacher, so my 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 first experiences with a great oboe teacher um were along the lines and the teachings of John Mack. So when I went and studied with Ralph Gomberg, like I said, I I feel like Mr. Gomberg was more interested in trying to open my mind musically and to make me into something more than an oboe player. And, um, so after I studied with Mr. Gomberg, I, I went back and studied privately with John Mack. So I did a lot of, I felt like that was what I needed at that point to try to get me back to kind of, I don't want to say, I guess ground zero. I mean, it was kind of like what I had known, um, from my earlier years and try to combine that with the fact that I had higher goals musically but yet you know the way john mack taught especially the technical aspects of playing and and the read making um it was more kind of at home for me so i felt like he those years i had I, i i um you know i i studied with him a lot it was privately but you know it was it was more than i would have gotten from him probably if i had actually done a degree you know with him it was i felt like i i was just begging him for lessons all the time and so i flew there as often as i could afford it and he took up a an incredible amount of time was very giving of his time i felt like and um with all of his students and you know, I would hear the orchestra, the Cleveland Orchestra, whenever I was there, and um, so he just turned out to be a huge influence. I'd known, I'd met him earlier at his John Mac Oboe Camp um, that all oboe players go to. Um, it's where I met people, you know, that I. would had no idea I would stay in contact with the rest of my life, but um, you know, he has this, he, he founded Well, actually I think Joseph Robinson that was in the New York Philharmonic. I think he was actually the founder of the or It was his idea. John Mack had so many people that he wanted that wanted to study with him. that He couldn't accept them all at the Cleveland Institute or not even close. So he had this camp in the summer for a week that was really intense and um, unbelievably, productive and helpful and enlightening. So I met him there, and then I continued the the private study after that. So after I um, finished my master's, I moved back to, to the Atlanta area, which was, you know, an hour from where I grew up. But some opportunities had opened up there performing-wise, and I thought that I could continue studying with John Mack and I could continue working on – doing auditions and I would uh, be able to do these jobs. So there were a few auditions that happened kind of in a span of a very short amount of time. So I moved back to Atlanta and I was principal oboe in the Columbus symphony and second oboe in the Greenville symphony and principal oboe in the Atlanta opera. So between that and um, a lot of teaching that I had, um, I, Took over an oboe studio for for a friend that was um, having some health issues at the time. And so between all of that, it was pretty busy, you know, a couple of years. And so I did that and, and was taking auditions.
0: How old were you at this point? I would have been... Like 26? Yeah. Somewhere around there? Yeah. yeah. Okay. And then how? when did you get this job in Birmingham? I got the job over here in
1: 97 when the orchestra had had um gone dark for a few years and when the orchestra came back in 1997
0: they had a few auditions and that was when i came over and so you've been here ever since um what other opportunities professionally have you had the opportunity to do i mean i guess what other orchestras maybe have you played with or what other um uh, opportunities do you feel like you've had that have been of of note or memorable to you or whatever throughout your career <clears throat> well the other orchestra
1: that i've played with the most over the years has been the atlanta symphony because with that initial experience that kind of changed everything i over the next several years especially when i was i guess what you would call a freelancer in the atlanta area i played a lot with um the Atlanta symphony. So that orchestra has always been in my head and, um, I have a huge amount of respect for, for them. And, uh, you know, of course, when I got this job here in the Alabama symphony, um, that was all that I concentrated on for a long time. But, um, two other orchestras that I've played with that, um, were really meaningful. I've played a few times with the San Francisco Symphony and
0: also the St. Louis Symphony. Uh, in which capacities did you play with them? What parts or whatever? So was it principal or was it section? or what? How did that work out? I
1: was playing in the section with both of them. Um, I've played principal in Atlanta. Um, in St. Louis, I played second. And in um, San Francisco, I've played second and um
0: some other positions so you've kind of although your main job is to play principal oboe you've had experiences uh kind of all around um as an oboe player in an orchestra yeah when i was in greenville i was actually
1: the english horn player there too i was second but that was a long time ago but yeah so but i've i have done the other the other um Positions in the section. I was actually thinking this morning, um, thinking about talking to you today, and I was thinking, um, I often thought that I would be um, maybe, you know, I, I often thought what it would be like to be a second oboist because all of these positions and a lot of it comes down to the equipment that we use and all always back to the reed making and all you know playing second oboe is such an art form i mean it's the position's called principal but you know that i play but it's it's funny to me to know um it's just such a challenge to play i mean English horn is the solo position you sit there forever doing nothing and then you play come in cold playing the most gorgeous solos known to men and that's terrifying second oboe (laughs) you play all the time and the only time people hear you is when you're doing the most demanding things on the instrument which are playing extremely low and extremely soft right right and oboe is not an instrument that it's easy to blend with other oboist sometimes and the second oboe that's kind of like the that's what you do is so yeah i mean i think maybe i ended up in the right position because i feel like that's probably what i do best but the other positions in the oboe section are certainly
0: um you know it's it's almost like they're all solo positions so do you feel your experience is playing second in that Uh, you know, stint as English horn, but mostly your experience is playing second. Do you feel like they inform the way that you play principal and kind of knowing what you, when you were playing second, what you listened for from principal players, do you feel like that informs then your principal playing to potentially, you know, make it easier for section players?
1: Yeah, probably so, I would think. Um, My experience on English horn, I thought, I used to think I was a pretty good English horn player. And then when I did it, For a couple of years, you know, in an orchestra, um, you know, I realized what a lot of people think if you play oboe, you can play English horn, which there's a little bit of well, there's some truth to that. But, you know, true English horn players are I think they'll probably all tell you that it's just it's almost like the instruments aren't even related in some ways. When I spent some concentrated time on English horn, I realized that that was probably too far out of reach for me. And that if I had really wanted to be a serious contender for an orchestral audition, I would probably have to spend a lot more time than I ever did. I felt like I kind of saw a glimpse of what it's like, you know, to, to be a decent English horn player, but, um,
0: it's just a whole different animal. Well, that's awesome. I um the thing that I'm really really excited to talk to you about is um just that because the principal oboe is such an exposed instrument, really that the 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 most you hear the oboe would be in a solo capacity. You might hear it as it's leading, or you will, not that you might, you you will hear it as it's leading some sort of woodwind corral or something like that. But when the orchestra gets loud, obviously um, sometimes it's not, it's it's not going to be able to produce the, the volume of sound that's going to be uh, heard, I guess is the best way to describe it. So basically when you're heard, you're in a solo capacity. And I think it would be interesting for me to learn what your process is. So say, uh, you see at the beginning of the season, we're going to play something like tombo or some sort of French repertoire or something that has, you know, Brahms Violin Concerto that has a uh, an exposed um, big oboe part. What is your process from finding that out to performance that allows you to feel that you're uh, as prepared as you need to be, as prepared as you can be to uh, just sound your best on those exposed parts? The process
1: for me, I don't know if it's different than a lot of other oboe players, but I feel like it might have, I might do it a little bit my own way just because it's, um, I thought you might ask me this question.
0: Of course I would ask you this question.
1: So (laughs) when, when I was in school, it was quite different because I had great teachers and, you know, listened to at least three, recordings of the piece you're working on, you know, get the score, you know, learn it backwards forwards and, you know, every other way possible and um put put headphones on with the recording and pretend like you're sitting in the orchestra and you know all the things you do as a student um which are so necessary, you know, in getting together an orchestral audition you know you have to just be able to nail these really difficult parts of the repertoire you know back to back which you would never do in real life in a concert but the way i've always prepared for um for playing those difficult pieces is kind of the same way that i just prepare for any other thing that i play you know when we did la Tombeau de Couperin. um was it last year, I mean, as soon as we get the season repertoire i i become that becomes part of my life at that moment so if it's if it 's March or February or something that we get the the season rep and it's got those pieces like that. It goes into my mind and everything that I do, whether it's buying an instrument, whether, you know, every read that I make, it's, it's, so basically my technique, if I had to boil it down, is that I basically live my job. I don't, I've never been someone that decides I'm going to practice for four hours or, and then go to the movies. My oboe sits on my peg on my desk. I pick it up at any time during the day, you know, and I feel like I need to be able to nail everything that I have upcoming, you know, at any time. I just feel like I need to always be warmed up. You know, it's just, I feel like I kind of live the oboe. And when I take time off in the summertime, it it's really strange because I, I have lots of things that I enjoy doing, Um, outside of oboe, but at some point, you know, after a few weeks go by, you know, I really feel, um, like something huge is missing. And because it is, you know, but because when I'm in the middle of the season, you know, I'm thinking about or playing the oboe or making reads all day long, like my, all day long, like literally. So, um, but, more specifically, I guess if if there's a demanding piece like we did Don Juan not long ago, that's pretty scary for an oboe player, just because you know you've got a long after this huge technical feat on the first page, you know, where the whole orchestra is playing, but yet it's a, a standard excerpt, so we think. It's our thing, you know, even (laughs) though the whole orchestra's playing the whole thing. So you kind of blow your face off a little bit on the first page. And then everything stops and, you know, (laughs) everything starts winding down. And then you have to come in on this low D that's soft. And, you know, you're doing this kind of, you know, the lyrical love theme or or whatever you want to call it. And it's really demanding to, to get the instrument to attack the low D without, you know, you know the way you want it and a lot of that comes down to the the technique of it so you know as it as it gets a week or two or three before something like don one like i'm really gearing up my read making to make reads that will do that so you know if i'm making reads even if we're doing a totally different program that week or more than one program as we often do um i'll make reads that will do i guess achieve the limiting factors like let's say that you want to attack a really soft low d you got to have everything perfect about your read maybe the program we're playing that week is not as demanding so it's like it kind of comes down to what the limiting factors are You know, and so maybe if I make a read that would I think would play Don Juan in a couple of weeks really well, maybe it goes in its own read case, and I don't touch that one or I don't play on that one. You know, so I've got I start building up my
0: equipment for that week. So, do you feel that if you had a read that was hypothetically perfect, that you could essentially play? anything that you would need to be able to play or do you still feel like there's a balance between I have this perfect read, but I'm still going to need to work on this piece. Uh, I'm going to need to practice this low D over and over and over again to feel confident with it. Um, And what is the balance between those things?
1: Well, when you make a read, I guess the, the most important thing to know about reads is when you make a great read, it's great right then you hope it's going to be great tomorrow and you change like you were saying you really hope it's going to be great because it's kind of like an ongoing process like the read never really gets finished i mean when it's finished it's it's when it's dead and when it's done you know like even so when when so I, i guess read possibilities is a better way to think about it so let's say i've got 12 read possibilities going in a week of Don Juan or something, those reads are going to need to be slightly adjusted the whole week long, you know, and they might change. I mean, if there's a drastic weather change, um, you know, I'll be making reads up until the day of. I mean, you know, when I when I would go listen to the Cleveland Orchestra or the Atlanta Symphony, when my teachers were there, they would be finishing reads on the stage john mack told me once that if he had a nickel for every read that he tied after 7 p.m you know he would be rich beyond belief and i pretty much saw that because i'd get to the concert early and he would finish the read that he was going to play on right then because that's the reads at its best when it's brand new it's got the most dynamic range it's got the most colors in the sound and then how long it lasts just depends on things that you do to it, as far as how much you play on it, but
0: things totally out of out of your control as well. So maybe to ask the the question in a different way would be: What are your thoughts of? Uh, I need to prepare a a piece by practicing that piece over and over and over and over again versus. If I have the skills necessary, if I own the skills necessary to play that piece at a high level, then maybe I don't have to spend as much time on that piece. What is the balance between that for you of basically how much do you practice just the skills necessary to play the oboe well? And then how much time is spent on actual repertoire that you may have upcoming?
1: Well, we're I'm I'm center as a typical oboe player i'm centering on the equipment and the reeds i we haven't even i haven't even mentioned like the fingers you know and the technique i mean that's like it's maybe it's a good thing i didn't mention it because it kind of shows what the life of an oboe player is because we have to practice technique too i mean uh, you know like the first page of don Juan is really difficult so there are patterns And things that we have to do, you know, that any other instrument has to do. It's just the reed making and
0: all of the equipment is on top of that. I mean... Do you feel like it comes first or is it equal? And how... uh, I'm just curious mostly, how has it changed maybe from since you were a student, right? I would assume you would say that your skills have improved since you were a student. I would say that's probably true for most of us, right? So when you were a student, how much of your time was dedicated towards you know, read making and equipment versus how much time was spent on technique versus how much time was spent on repertoire as opposed to now? Are those percentages of the pie chart the same or do you find yourself as your skills have improved, you spend, you're able to spend maybe less time focusing on that and more time focusing on as long as I have really great equipment, all of my skills will be there if I need it to be.
1: Well, at this point, since I've played most of these pieces multiple times, some of, or lots of them, you know, the technique of it is, is something I have to spend a little bit less time on, um, than I did when I was obviously first learning the pieces. But the equipment and the reads is something that's never, that time commitment will never change. But, um, you know, I think the hardest thing for me, and probably most oboe players is when do you stop letting yourself make reads and when do you start practicing the notes? I mean, my music, I have two music stands in my studio for that very reason. I have a music stand beside my read desk and I have a music stand across the room. So at some point, you know, if we're playing La to Cooperan, that's, you know, really finger technique oriented. I've got to walk across the room and get away from my reed desk and I have to make myself do that because it's hard. I mean, if you've got this one, because like one little scrape on the reed, one little minuscule amount of cane off the reed in a, in a certain crucial area can be the difference between how it sounds and how it functions. I mean, it's, 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 um, kind of scary to think about how little, you know, cane you can take off. and what So, you know, you're across the room practicing technical aspects, and you're like, okay, so if I just walk across the room and take this one little scrape, my whole life will be different. And it's it's kind of like self-control. I mean, no, you have to practice the technique. (laughs) Yeah, wow. That's,
0: That's just obviously, as a trumpet player, as you can even tell the way I'm asking the question, it's kind of like, I could spend my time getting better at the trumpet, or I could spend my time on the repertoire at hand, understanding the repertoire better, you know, how the harmony works, what the notes are and things like that. But to add that third step in there is just crazy that that's like a equal thing, equal step. Um, and that I'm sure very few people, especially musicians, you know, when we don't know that that's a part of it, we don't even really think about that as, as a huge part of it. So to have that, involved in your preparation and to be able to do what you do and sound the way you sound, I think is, is incredible. It's, it's very, it's something I respect highly that I didn't even really know about until this moment. So yeah, that's amazing. Um, so headed in that direction of, we have all of these things to put together in order to sound the way we sound. Everybody who comes to the concerts, uh, musicians and audience alike, there's no doubt that when we hear you play we feel on our side we, this this effortless musical beautiful singing product it's and it's always that way every single time I hear you it just, to me, is it, it's as good as it gets. And uh, it's something I respect about your playing. That consistency, I think, is incredibly important as an orchestral player. Not to be able to do it one time, but to be able to sound that way all the time. Knowing you the way I do, though, I know that performance uh, anxiety is a part of you and a part of your life. And I would love it if you wanted to speak just a little bit about how you may mitigate that, how you deal with that kind of thing that allows you to, even if you're dealing with nerves and things like that, how you, how, how you get to the point where you can still sound so beautiful all the time.
1: Well, first of all, it's hard to hear you say all that because it's super nice and I really appreciate it. It's just, very true. I, I mean, you know, um, you know, I don't kind of don't know what to say because I've had um, performance anxiety. Is something that I think we all deal with. Um, I'm having about, Whether,
0: you know, we all deal with it, but I feel like not all of us can come away, or not all of us who deal with it come away with a product that's so polished. You know, the nerves may seem to get to people more than it gets to you, um, and so. Yeah, exactly. Like, how do you make it so you can deal with it in a way that still allows you to have all of your skills available? That's what I'm most curious about.
1: Well, it's kind of like what we were talking about earlier about the the oboe just sits on on the peg on my desk. And I'm, I feel like one thing that I would be not so great at might be being assistant principal um, because that job is unbelievably hard. I mean, I don't think... You know, if the principal oboist is gonna play um La Scala de Seta or something that week and I have to be ready to jump in if that person gets ill or whatever, I don't know how I would deal with that. Maybe maybe I would figure it out. I'm not sure, but I I think the thing that helps me with performance anxiety is the planning and the repetitions and the you know, I get most nervous about performing in advance. I mean, you know, not, I'm not the kind of person that gets more nervous an hour before a concert. I actually kind of just kind of get in the zone or kind of get in to what's going to happen. You know, if you told me, that, in one hour, I was gonna play that the principal oboe got sick and i I had to play some giant piece that's when I would freak out because I have to have the time to like settle my brain into what I'm gonna do. but you know if I think about it long enough, and if I put myself in the you know if I visualize what's gonna happen and Think about, you know, I've played these excerpts for different teachers that I respect. I've played this piece a bunch of times, maybe, or just, you know, I've got to have the time to process it. It, That's what's most important for me. So you'd say
0: just living, sort of, though we were saying earlier that you live the oboe. The oboe is a part of your life at all times. That's kind of what you feel allows you to deal with it, to have the confidence to be able to put your best foot forward or the musical product forward that you want to Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. So one thing now that I'm interested in talking to you about is your various passions outside of the orchestra. We've already touched on them a little bit. So I'd like to kind of dig in a little deeper. Um, I I think I know the things I know about you are uh, you have a passion for conducting choir. You have a passion for Uh, plants. You have a greenhouse in your backyard that you cultivate with much love. And also, as we talked about, I didn't realize it was quite to this degree, but you have a a love and a passion for for pets as well. And so I I would just be curious about how we can just kind of go one by one, how you feel like uh, maybe we'll start with the choir. Uh, I know that this is such a huge part of your life. I did not know either that it went back as far as it did. But how do you feel like Your uh, love of choir and your study of choral music and being a choir director, maybe how that's affected your oboe playing and maybe how being an oboe player has helped influence what you understand about uh, directing choir and working with musicians like that, just sort of how those two things have helped each other.
1: Well, we're, we're always told that, you know, when we play an instrument, we're supposed to imitate A great singer which is what I've always tried to do and then as I got more interested in singing and vocal music myself I just even though the technique of singing and oboe playing are quite different um are very different it's um I feel like it's possible to do both things but I think that the outcome is the same so I think my love of just teaching in general and um my love of vocal music is what makes me love choir directing so much because we're all, you know, we're born with the ability to sing. I mean, the, the vast majority of people, I mean, I think just about everybody can sing. And um so if you think about it on a base level like that, when you learn to play an instrument, there's a lot of time that, goes into just making the instrument function well enough to be able to play great music. Well, since we're born with our voice now, don't get me wrong. Being a great singer is unbelievably uh, difficult. And the, the singers that we, that are, that are at the top of their field are um, unbelievably disciplined. And, you know, I, I can't, Tell you how much respect I have for them, but I just mean on a baseline. You know, dealing with a choir, there are people in my my own choir that are extremely advanced,
0: and there are people in my own choir that are fairly new to singing. Where and, is that? Sorry, what, that the for not for, maybe doesn't everybody doesn't know, but where is that choir? So
1: I got the choir directing position at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Birmingham five years ago. Um, that was a position that I could combine with the Symphony, Alabama Symphony responsibilities that I have there. So, I um, I was you know extremely excited to finally get back into choir directing yeah. after all these years.
0: I didn't mean to interrupt you. I just wanted to make sure that uh, for anybody listening that might not know where you were at, um, to kind of figure that out. So, you were saying you have a wide range of levels or abilities in your choir right and all these people can come together
1: and sing great choral music and maybe you know they're going to be the leaders and they're going to be the people that are you know kind of following i guess you might say you know the different levels but they can all come together and and do this one thing and create you know something beautiful and um one reason i love it so much is because you know we can kind of set aside our differences and I mean, I'm always surprised. We have rehearsals on Wednesday nights at 7, and I guess I'm always surprised that people show up because, you know, most people work pretty hard at their jobs these days, and to to volunteer to come out and spend an hour and a half on Wednesday nights, um, it's a little unbelievable to me. But, but when we all get there, you've got all these people that have different beliefs, um, especially at the Unitarian Church. I mean, we celebrate differences in belief that's kind of what the church is built on and you know so when you have all these different people 30 or so different people that are you know coming from different points in life have different things that they do during the day and different ages and different musical abilities and they're all trying to learn a piece and make music and something beautiful out of out of You know, they're all doing the same thing at the same time and they're volunteering to do it. There's just something really profound
0: about that. Yeah, it's one of my favorite things about music, actually, because on any level, anybody who's involved in an ensemble, like you said, it's you put your differences aside, you put your beliefs aside, because we're all working together. To achieve a common goal. And I think there's just a lot of really amazing stuff that can happen when you're not worried about, do I agree with the person next to me? And it it kind of doesn't matter, right? You're just, I got to be able to sing or play next to this person because the music deserves it, right? The audience, the people that are listening deserve it. And so it makes it so, yeah, you can kind of put all those differences aside and find at least some common ground <laughs> with a person that you may not potentially not agree with a lot of stuff on i think that's a really really beautiful thing so um if i remember right i think you're gonna be very upset at me if i got to get this wrong but you went to oxford and did a i don't want to call it a camp because i feel like it makes it sound less formal than it may have been but you did some sort of workshop maybe that's a better word for it workshop there a choral workshop
1: yes i um so i had these great um, experiences with Robert Shaw when I sang in the Atlanta Symphony Chorus, and then when I got the job as choir director at the Unitarian Church, um, I decided I wanted to, you know, getting back into that side of my life. Even though I never really stopped listening to choral music, and I never stopped loving choirs and and um, all of that. I never stopped, stopped that aspect, but as far as me being a choir director, I put that on hold for quite a number of years. And then when I got back into it, I wanted to kind of dive in a little deeper, so I got um, accepted into a class at Westminster Choir College um, one summer, and it was a, a choral conducting class. And so that led me to the next summer apply for their, their choral Institute at Oxford. So they have a, a dual, um, I guess you, the prog- dual program with St. Stephen's house in Oxford in England and Westminster choir college. And they do, a, uh, I think it's 10 days. Um, it's a little over a week The call the choral Institute at Oxford. And I think there were 20 of us, um, choral conductors from all over everywhere that get into this program. And, um, we, we live the, the program is at St. Stephen's house and it's an enclosed space. I think it was a monastery. I should know that, but I, I think it was a monastery. So there's this great cathedral and then there's living quarters, there's a dining hall, there, and and they're connected without even having to go outside. I mean, it's all enclosed. So when you take a space like that, and then you bring these amazing choral conductors as teachers, and then the students like me, and you put them together for that kind of time, and it's literally eating breakfast together together, and then there's usually a service, a, a vespers service, or you know, a, a chant session or something that night. You know, literally before you go to bed. So it's all day. I mean, it's 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 a total immersion thing. Um, so yeah, that experience kind of changed everything for me in a big way. I think that was the summer of 2015, and then. Um, two summers after that, I went and did another choral conducting course back at Westminster up in Princeton and, um, got to work with Charles Bruffy, who, um, you know, was, was, um, is just about the best that there is as far as choral conductors go. He's, um, does the Phoenix Chorale and the, the Kansas City Chorale, um, and it's just kind of he worked with robert shaw he actually sang as a soloist with robert shaw um and i feel like if there's anybody that could could be qualified to take what robert shaw did for choral music and keep it going and do i dare say even go beyond that it would be him he's just a a force of nature. And, you know, I got to spend a week with him and that was, um,
0: that was pretty life-changing. So how do you, how do you, as a very studied, sensitive musician, what kind of things do you feel you gleaned from these people you consider to be master teachers of choral music? What kinds of things are you picking up on from them that maybe enhance what you do overall? Well, Robert Shaw had a way of, um, I
1: think the main thing I learned from him, which is kind of dawning on me right now, is that at that point in my life, I thought that, you know, all these great oboe players and great musicians, great singers, they had something really magical, even if it was just their experience or their years of of working or playing for this conductor or that conductor. There were all these things that I didn't, I didn't know why they were so great. But I think what Robert Shaw may have done that made the biggest impact on me was that he had a way of rehearsing his choirs where um, it all came down to rhythm and pitch. And if you listen to any of his recordings, especially the, the Atlanta Symphony Chorus recordings and chamber chorus recordings um, from the years before he died. Um, they recorded just about every major choral work, and what you'll hear is that they're perfect. I mean, he there was no text. If if you were singing a mass or the Brahms Requiem, you were counting on numbers. You were you were you were singing numbers one and two and three and four. I mean, it was that mundane almost so you were having you were achieving perfect rhythm you were achieving perfect pitch he had a way of um he the choir one of the things the choir would do is they would raise the pitch of a note on separate on separate um sounds they would take a a half step and divide it into 16 parts so you would start on an F and you would sing a series of Lou, loo loo until you got to an F sharp 16 pulses later and you would do that with a group of 200 people and at the beginning of the season i i mean by the time i got in the choir it was it sounded perfect to me right off the bat but yet at the end of the season it was even more so you know when you hear a robert shaw um, Atlanta Symphony Chorus recording, and you're listening to the intonation. You will not hear anything but perfection. So I think what this did, I mean, you 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 achieve perfect rhythm, you achieve perfect intonation, and that gets you so far. It, it, yeah, we that's think like
0: ninety five percent of the work, right?
1: I mean, we think of those things as being. Like, oh, you've gotta put the musicality in. You it it's gotta be it's not it's not expressive. But when you can really say that your group or yourself has achieved like perfect rhythm and perfect intonation, that is it's there's so many people that 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 try to be great musicians that don't have
0: those things. Yeah, I, I it's really interesting. Uh I, I've had the thoughts before that, yeah, if you could just get Perfect rhythm, perfect intonation, and then, you know, great time. Uh, that That's just, yeah, 90% of music is made up of those things right there. And then what you do with it, what your personality, where you slow down, where you speed up, where you decide to have a little bit more maybe vibrato or spin or something like that. Those things are what make it personal but yeah you got to get your your foundation first your ninety percent of the phrase that's supposed to be happening it's really interesting that he would just hammer those things and it would have that profound of an effect well the hard part is is putting musical
1: expression into it without changing the perfect rhythm and the perfect intonation sure yeah no I mean you sense. start what you start with those basics but then whatever you put into it interpret you know interpretively if you can do that without changing those things, because that's what I, that's where I feel like a lot of people fall short. I mean, that's the hard part, you know. I remember Jonathan Delowey said to me one time, I think it had to do with taking this audition. He was like, perfect rhythm, perfect intonation, decent tone. <laughs> and I was offended. In my mind, that he said decent tone because I was like, "How dare you say decent tone?" I mean, whereas as you know, oboe players are obsessed with tone. If if we're not, we should be doing something else instead of playing the oboe. If we're not obsessed with the sound and trying to get that perfect sound in our head, we need to really be not playing the oboe because it's it's just that's hard. So I, maybe he knew that decent means, you know, as great as you can possibly play. It. But maybe he meant something beyond that. Like, we, we're we obsessed with the sound, but we're also more sensitive to it than anyone that's listening to us, probably. Yeah,
0: I think that's a very good possibility, yeah. So if you can, so that perfect rhythm, perfect pitch, you know, is... Uh, yeah, I think that's that's pretty much gold, right? It's just focusing on that. I think it makes the phrasing simpler, right? It's, it's almost like less complication leads to more beauty rather than a phrase that just has so much stuff packed in there that it's almost hard to follow what's going on right well that covers maybe your choir passion which is awesome uh we could move on to your plants passion in the greenhouse um i know myself that this is something you spend a lot of your time doing but i don't know why so i would like you to talk about what about cultivating and keeping. And uh, from what I understand, Kathleen told me today that you are making hybrid plants, which I don't think that's something I knew about, but people probably do know about. And I'm just curious, what about it is something that makes you feel like you want to spend uh, that much time doing it? What does it provide for you that uh, makes it so uh, worthwhile?
1: Well, I've both um, sets of my grandparents were avid gardeners they grew um most of the food that they ate um especially as they as they got older and they weren't working all the time um but they were also um just great growers of you know even i guess what you would consider ornamental plants um I kind of got obsessed with that my one of my grandmothers had a greenhouse so i kind of got obsessed with that whole idea of being able to do to grow things year round so my dad built me a greenhouse when i was i think 12 so i had a greenhouse on the back side of my parents house when i was a kid so i got my first orchid about that time it was a, an orchid it was the type of orchid was a cattleya, and it was the big corsage, like when you see people wear these big corsages, like on special occasions or Mother's Day or whatever. Uh, the ones with the big lip, and I remember it was solid white, and it kind of had a purple and yellow throat in there. So with that, um, I got obsessed with orchids. Orchids are everywhere nowadays. Like if you go to Lowe's or Home Depot, or I mean, you can grocery store, you can see. The they're called Phalaenopsis orchids, or they look some people call them the moth orchid because they kind of look a little bit like the blooms look like a moth. Um, those are pretty easy to grow, and you can grow them as houseplants. Um, but anyway, I got obsessed with orchids at that early age, and um, I think it was about 16 years ago, I bought my house, and my main reason that I wanted to buy a house was. So I would have a yard to build a greenhouse. So I built a greenhouse instantly. I think the greenhouse may have even been started before I moved in the house. I'm not sure. It was right around the same time. So I have a greenhouse now, um, and I've grown orchids for years and years and years. That's just the kind, that's the type of plant that I'm most obsessed with. But really, I thought, I used to think I was well-rounded by being a musician and having this whole orchid obsession but it's all it's the same thing it's beautiful things it's like i mean i don't see it as being well-rounded at all anymore it's i mean i grow i like to grow things that are beautiful Orchids are challenging, just like the oboe is, so it's all the same thing. It's like, you know, maybe I'm not well-rounded at all, and I just have to deal with that, I guess.
0: Yeah, I just just find it (laughs) interesting. Um, I did not know it was a lifelong passion of yours like that. That's really, really cool. Um, But I find it interesting, yeah, that I think it's sort of a personality type, right, where you do one thing really well, and then you start to branch out, and you want to do just everything with the things you're passionate about, at least with all of your ability. For me, it's become, many people know it's become powerlifting and working out. It's sort of been a passion, less uh, a second life almost for me. And I feel I've learned so much about myself, so much about, um, you know, things like progression, how to progress in the weight room has affected my decision-making on progressing in uh, as a musician. And I just think it's pretty... It's pretty interesting that we would go to all of these uh these great lengths to really learn and and do these things, but like you said, it's all kind of they're all kind of related uh by something that makes us tick, which is very very cool um yeah, so I think the next thing I'd love to talk about with you is you mentioned earlier, John Max Oboe Camp, and uh, I think a lot of people know at this point you started your own oboe camp, the Southern Oboe Intensive, I believe it's called, right? That's right. Yeah, that's a great name. <clears throat> uh, so. I think it was started three years ago, I believe. Uh, you could obviously talk about this in just a second, but uh, I just want to know why in the world would you want to s- do something that takes that much effort? What's kind of the motivation behind that for you, and how it's been going? What maybe plans you have for the for the next year or two? Maybe ten year plan, that kind of thing. Just w- what does it mean to you to have this oboe camp?
1: That's right, we started the oboe camp three years we we've just we've did our our third year was last summer, so um, my main motivation for wanting to start the oboe camp were was um my two friends just super close friends, Phil Ross and Russ de Luna. Phil is um assistant principal in St Louis, and Russ is the solo English horn in San Francisco. We've known each other for a long time. Um, They've both played in the Alabama Symphony from time to time over the years, but um, I've known them both for a really long time, and I—they're much more than colleagues or friends. I mean, I feel like they're—they're they're more like family at this point. So I feel like my main motivation for starting the camp was I wanted to have an opportunity for the three of us to be in the same place at the same time um, and to be able to to teach together. Um, so I feel like that was our motivation. We talked about it for years. So whose idea was it to actually officially move forward with it then? Um, well, I mean, <clears throat> I guess I can claim – the uh, that idea as far as moving it forward but the reason it moved forward was because we the person that coordinates our camp julie Grosso, is also a great friend of mine that i've known for a very long time from my atlanta days she is an oboist she um runs a, a business called double or nothing reads <laughs> up in cincinnati um Oboe players know that there are lots of oboe shops all over the country. We have so much stuff that goes into the reed making and even, you know, there's so much equipment involved that a lot of people have a business. I mean, it can be a full-time business. You know, Julie has a great business and we've remained friends for, we've been friends for a long, long time. So I told her because I know, you know, Russ and Phil and I, we talk all the time. I talk to them almost every day. Um, I knew that we would never get it together without outside help. Julie has um, planned workshops, programs, different summer activities for different oboe players around the country. She did a big thing um, a while back. I think she's helped Elaine DuVos and Linda Stroman and other people, other great, there are so many great oboe teachers out there now but so anyway i contacted her to see if she was interested and she's really the person that kind of held us to it i think i contacted her um i don't know maybe it was late summer a few years ago and so we kind of had the whole fall winter to get it going and she just did it she gave us deadlines and she did all the work, um, as far as, you know, things dealing with housing and meals and insurance and all the things that you have to pay for. It's at University of Alabama, Birmingham, UAB. Um, and so there are people, the first year we had mostly local people, the second and third years, It's almost been split by the people that we have coming in. I think um, we had eight or ten states represented. I mean, there are people coming from all over.
0: So it's growing, yeah.
1: Yeah, it's definitely grown. So Julie coordinated it, helped us get started. And then um, Russ and Phil and I have just – it's been more than we – more fun than we thought it would be and i think our first year everything was new we had a great time but the second and third years i feel like we um since we knew what to expect i felt like we really you know got it together and I f- were more relaxed with the with it and it is it's called the southern oboe intensive but we actually do have a lot of fun with it i I always worry that the word "intensive" is going to make you know oboe players are intense enough as it is. Probably <laughs> didn't need to have that word in there, but we just had a nice ring to it, and you know we we do have a lot of fun. But it's a lot
0: that goes into those day, that five day long oboe camp. So, what kinds of things are offered? Is it just master classes? Are there opportunities? Are does like an oboe ensemble exist? Is there a repertoire and things like that? I have no idea. But that's what a trumpet thing would be. You would have trumpet ensemble and you'd have master classes and maybe somebody would perform. Is it similar to that for your camp? It is. So the
1: first thing we do, we actually have a group warm up. Um, So we warm up in the morning, 35, not including faculty members, oboe players was how many we had last year. So we do a warm up for a little bit and then we do a master class and then we um, a pretty long master class in the morning then we you know it's usually lunch and then after lunch we have another class then we have a readmaking making session every day um and um then we do chamber music and the night for the people that are staying overnight they have different activities at night that are a little more low-key because it's a pretty long pretty full day um
0: we do you guys have like video games for those people um That's a joke, Jim. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Obviously. To be
1: honest, I'm not even sure what they do in the dorm. That, <laughs> that's Julie's specialty, and she's, you know, some people want to practice and make reeds and some people are have had enough by that point. But we've had a repair. Brian Seaton has been our master repair man the past two years, so it's grown little by little. Pat McFarland from McFarland Double Read Shop came over last summer. Um you know, knives are a big part of our life. We had a we had a knife representative come down from the wicked edge, which is a big a big knife sharpening system. So it's
0: just oboe players getting together and talking shop, it sounds like
1: that's right. And it's it's pretty much all ages. We wanted to gear it towards college um level, late high school, college, maybe people that are gearing up for auditions, but we had a wide range of of um ages and abilities the first year and we just kind of went with that and we've actually really liked the um the way that they all learn from each other i mean the three of us try to teach the master classes together if there's a big difference in ability since there are three of us, we can split a group off if necessary. But we really like to try to stay together because we team teach the whole thing. And that's really our motivation for starting
0: the whole thing. And I'm sure that makes it special too, right? That people get all three of you together as it would be instead of splitting it up and getting only one.
1: Yeah. And I think the, the three of us get along as people really, really well. And we approach things pretty similar similarly I think there are different there are so many different oboe camps believe it or not now but I feel like that might be the thing that is best about ours is that we're working together and we're kind of playing off of each other because when you're in a master class students don't realize that you're really you're performing you know it's like you're you're kind of on stage and you're having to think in the moment so it's nice to Let's say Phil is leading. We kind of rotate who starts off with the people in the class. And then the other two people are able to listen to the person, the teacher and the student and kind of hear what they have to say, but also think more clearly because you're not as on stage, you know, so we can kind of maybe Phil started in and you could kind of take something in a, in a, in a different direction or, um, I don't know. So it kind of takes. I guess the pressure off a little bit, knowing that you've got two other people that are kind of going to chime in. And so I really think it's,
0: it's just a lot of fun for the three of us. And I think the, the kids have said they really enjoyed it, you know? So do you just have plans of continuing it, continuing it indefinitely, or as it, do you think you'll get to a point where you're not going to want to do all that work or kind of what's your plan for the future?
1: No, we're definitely going forward with it. I mean, I think, uh, Our first year we had about 30, and the second year we had about the same amount. And then we decided to increase the number to 35 last year, and we we, um, all those spots got filled. So I think um, right now our biggest challenge might be what happens if it gets bigger because we felt like that might be about as many as we want. That uh, you know, because they do chamber music, and you were asking if there's music written for that many. Well, there's actually, believe it or not, Bois Matier, I think is how you say his name, actually wrote a lot of oboe music for, I think, as many as 12 different parts. Um, I, I learned about that music actually at Banff Music Festival. I didn't know that composer, but, but you know, there are a lot of arrangers nowadays too. Um, so we have a lot of music some of it is fun and some of it is more serious i mean the there's the beethoven trio for two oboes and english horn that's opus 87 that you know is a serious beethoven didn't even write an oboe concerto but he wrote a piece for two oboes and english horn which i think is kind of and it's a great piece and there's several other pieces like that that are you know serious pieces but like i said there's tons of arrangements i mean we even did music by you
0: know right yeah. Um, so for anybody who's listening that might be interested, um, when does this happen? What's the application process like? Just to give some sort of idea of what they would look around for. Where can they find the information?
1: Well, one of Julie's many things that she does well is our website. So there's actually a website that would make it really easy um, to go to Um And it happens in July. The first year we did it over July 4th, the UAB band had a concert on July 4th that they invited us to be part of. So 30 oboes took the stage and played a couple of pieces. And actually, the two years after that, we decided to do it the week after July 4th. But we were almost disappointed that we don't have that opportunity. So um, yeah, the world was not ready for that. But um, (laughs) anyway, they got it. So it's the week after July 4th.
0: And can you apply at any time? Is there an open application period? Like you can uh, apply at any time. We start really after
1: the first of the year. We start really trying to get the word out. And if
0: there are any changes or additions, or you know, things. sure. Okay. Well, to finish up uh, with you, I, like I said, I, I'm so thankful uh, you were able to to take some time to talk to me. I've learned so much. This is why it's a very cool aspect of this for me, is I get to ask the questions I want to ask and really get to know the people I interview. And one thing I'm very curious about is uh, why, if we want to say it in this way, why is classical music music relevant uh, in our culture today? Or why do we think people should care about orchestras? Kind of what are your thoughts about um, the idea that classical music is, quote, dying and how um you know what kinds of things do you feel about that particular topic well i don't think it's dying at all and i don't
1: think it ever will i i think the reason it won't die is because um we're creating beauty um i think that's what it all comes down to when i think about choir directing I mentioned that you have all these different people coming together voluntarily to do one thing, one beautiful thing, bring someone's music to life that otherwise would be notes on a page, you know, in a drawer somewhere. But as professional musicians, I think it's the same thing, just slightly different, even though it's our job and, um, you know, we're being paid to be there. We're creating beauty. And you know, if we have a concert at 7pm at or whatever time, you know that when you come there, you're going to have all these different people that are going to fill the stage. And at a certain specified time, we're going to bring someone's music to life. So it's it's different than going to an art museum where the art is there all the time and you can do it at any time. This is kind of like beauty in time. You know, it's 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 going to happen at a certain time. These people are going to be collectively bringing this music to life. And if you think about the decisions that people make and what we have to go through to, to be able to do what we do, we are so fortunate to be able to do it. But at the same time, I think what makes us different than maybe going to a sporting event, I think if you go to a football game, you're watching people compete and you're watching them do these, these feats that maybe you can't do yourself. I mean, these skills and these, you know, and it's competitive and it's exhilarating and it it's exciting but what we're doing is the same as that, as far as the skill goes, but that we're we're creating something beautiful. And, you know, when, when the world is kind of trying to um, highlight our differences and all the bad things going on, you know, it's nice to know that you've got the opportunity to come out and watch people explore the other side of the coin
0: and create something beautiful so you're clearly advocating for uh live music over recorded music because I feel it's possible you know someone might think oh I could just listen to Brahms 2 on this really great recording that I have but I really love how you said that that we're creating beauty in time that it's it's a living organism Uh, And so, yeah, it sounds like you're advocating live performance may have uh, an additional aspect to it over just the work itself. Well,
1: I think they're both necessary. I mean, you can, after a long day, you can turn on your favorite recording and kind of escape, you know. But there's something about, you know, committing to showing up somewhere with a whole bunch of people you may or may not know at a specified hour and know that this is going to happen. I think that commitment gets your mind and body in the right, you know, you're committing to it. You have time to realize what's going to happen. And I feel like it makes the experience, not just all the other reasons to go to live music, as far as it's going to sound better. And it's, it's real, you know, you're, you've committed to it and that's going to make you experience
0: it in a different way. That's very well said, Jim. Uh, I think we uh, can probably cut it off there if you'd like. Uh, Thank you so much again for for stopping by and talking to me. Uh, Your words were... uh, I don't know. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed learning about what you had to say, and I just want to say thanks. Oh, my pleasure. I enjoyed it. Uh, If you'd like to get in touch with me, you can do so on Facebook. Just search RB Trumpet, and you'll find my artist page there. Um, so that's the rest of it. And, uh, I hope everybody has a good day. See ya.